Good evening, fellow inertial observers. I am here with PhD of theoretical particle physics and now scientific lead of business development at Cambridge Quantum Computing. You heard it here first, physics after hours. But to go back to uh, his PhD in particle physics, his PhD advisor, and I just found this out before the show, was none other than Brian Green. You heard that right. So, man, is he interesting and just sounds like an incredibly fascinating life story. Uh, his name is none other than Mark Jackson. Let's go ahead and give him a round of applause. Okay, very, very good, very good. Um, and so, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, so as per the usual, uh, go ahead, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sounds like you have a CV a mile long, uh, but you know, whatever you can encapsulate within a few minutes, you do you. <laughs> sure. Uh, th thank you, Dylan. Uh, it's great to be here. I've been uh, a longtime follower of your Twitter account and, uh, and the events that you've been hosting the past few months. Wow. I want to go on record as saying I think you are the funniest guy on physics and math Twitter, oh, at least. Um, you heard it here first. Every day. So uh, so yeah, I want to I want to say that uh, I think I think it's fantastic what you're doing, and you always make me laugh. So uh, <laughs> thank so you, thank Mark. you. Appreciate that. Yeah yeah uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so yeah, thank you again for having me. Um, yeah, I, I uh, I've been interested in science, I guess, uh, ever since I was a kid. Um, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon, which I'm actually I'm here right now. Um, mm. Until about two months ago, I lived in Berkeley. But uh, because of all the, the recent circumstances, mm -hmm. I've moved back in with my parents. Um, I didn't think I'd be doing that at 42. <laughs> but, uh, but here I am at my parents' home uh, in, in Portland, Oregon, and I'll be here for a while, I think. Um, well, that's so, uh, you, know, you get to here. spend some time with them. It's, yeah. it's, it's fun. It's, uh, it's, it's funny seeing all of us readjust right, to right. being at home <laughs> all the time, not just two days. Wow. But, uh, but no, it's, uh, we all get along very well. It's, it's been a, a fun two months, actually. Um, yeah, so uh, so I always liked physics, and I I, uh, I remember actually telling my high school teacher that I wanted to do physics in college, and he told me, no, don't do that because there's nothing left to learn. What? You were born at the wrong time, and they've already – he said they figured out everything in physics. Oh, yeah. my goodness. That was his well-meaning advice. Wow. Yeah, um, and so my first year of college, I was, in, I was an engineering student, actually, and I hated it, and I wasn't very good at it. And, uh, and then it was a summer job that I had at, at Caltech JPL the next summer where I was around physicists and I saw that was my tribe. And mm. so the first day back sophomore year, I went into physics and uh, soon after that math because you basically have to take all the math classes anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so then my junior year, uh, so I went, I went to Duke for college. Um, they hired this, this amazingly smart new professor named Ronan Plesser, and he did something called string theory, which I had no idea what it was, but it sounded really cool. And he was very smart and very friendly. And so uh, so I started working for him. And then when it came to time to go to grad school, he suggested I work for a colleague and friend of his um, he had worked with at Harvard. Um, they had done some good work together. And so I, uh, so I did. I went to Columbia for grad school, and I started working for Brian Green, um, wow. who was not famous at the time actually mm -hmm. um it was it was summer that i started um uh fall of 99 that, that's when i started mm -hmm. uh that's actually when he wrote the elegant Universe. and so it was kind of mm -hmm. fun to see firsthand uh his uh, his rise to fame yeah and that's really so, um, crazy so, so yeah. was that like the the course of uh like your ph i mean because like he rose up really really quickly uh, and so after you wrote the elegant universe, you know, it was just kind of, you know, game set and match. And so you were just there for all of it. I, uh, yeah, I arrived that summer and, uh, and that's when he, when he had the elegant universe and then there was the Nova special right. and, uh, and then, um, fabric of the cosmos kind of came out yeah. as I was graduating. Um, I helped him with the Simpsons jokes in that, by the way, I just want to <laughs> hey, go on. Hey, I love it. And if you look at the acknowledgments, I'm there. Yeah. But only because of the Simpsons joke, because because the Simpsons is from Portland, Oregon. Matt Manning went to my high school. Oh no! Way. And so I, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Simpsons, at least the early seasons. Matt and Groening, so Brian a, would come into my office. He was a mathematician too, right? Like the writer of the Simpsons, Matt Groening. No. I think you, I think who you might be thinking of is um. He was a guy on Futurama. 
Yeah, yeah. There was there was a physicist involved. In huge trauma. Yeah, yeah. But Matt Greening, I think, um, oh no, was really? not a physics guy. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay, yeah. I stand yeah. corrected. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, Brian would come in and ask like, "What are the names of Ned Flanders' kids?" And I <laughs> I tell him. Instead of, uh, <laughs> so that was my contribution wow. to Fabric of the Cosmos. Yeah, but he um, just like, but but you were just so there the, alongside of like the other acknowledgements, right? Like Stephen Weinberg, all them. Like you're yeah, just <laughs> I, yeah, oh yeah. Thanks, Ed Whitting wow. and and, uh, and all these other people and Mark Jackson. <laughs> I'll just leave it to your imagination. I couldn't say anything. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right on. Okay, um, so that's chapter one uh, with Mark Jackson. Uh, and so chapter two seems, is it a bit longer than chapter one? You are now doing quantum computing and all this other crazy stuff. So when did that start? When did that kind of become a thing? Yeah. So, um, so I did academia for many years and, uh, I briefly had a startup and I worked on it for about two years. It didn't work out. Then I moved out to California to look mm. for jobs and I took one of those, uh, those data science bootcamp courses uh to, to make myself a little more mm -hmm. attractive to employers um yeah when you say you're just a physicist a lot of times they're skeptical but if you say no i actually can program and i, I can do stuff in the real world they're, they're a little more encouraged and so it was actually while i was taking that class i started learning about quantum computing which wasn't a thing when i was a grad student that wasn't uh anywhere near being feasible and mm. so i started thinking about quantum computing and it really existed apparently and, uh, and it sounded so cool that you, you could really do things. And so that's that's what I wanted to do. Um, but of course, there were not many jobs in it. And I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any training. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was fortunate, though. I was hired as faculty at Singularity University in Mountain View. Singularity and so I, University. Here we divide by zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, the joke there was it wasn't a university. And it wasn't even about the singularity. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's more of a think tank in Silicon Valley. Oh, it talks enough, about new enough. technologies. And it was started by Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis, who uh, are big like singularity proponents yeah, and yeah. such. And so, um, so I talked a lot about quantum computing while I was there, but I, I missed actually doing things. It's one thing to be talking mm. about it to executives and stuff, but it's another to actually be part of it. And I missed being part of it. And so uh, I actually had I had dinner with a friend of mine. He's a math professor at Berkeley. You might have heard of him, Ed Frankel. He's, he's written some books and done some stuff. Um, and he's a great guy. And we had dinner and I told him what I really want to do is quantum computing. Do you know anyone? And he mm. says, yeah, I know two people. That night he made two email introductions and almost immediately um, the, the founder and CEO of Cambridge Quantum replied. He was one of them. Mm -hmm. And he says, your timing is perfect because so they were a British company, obviously, Cambridge, England. Yeah. But they wanted to hire someone in the U.S. And oh. so it was it was amazing timing. They wanted to hire someone in the U.S. I was in berkeley living and uh and so uh so yeah i was kind of hired almost immediately um and that was about two and a half years ago and it's just amazing every day there's some big announcement uh it's in academia um sometimes it can kind of seem like this week is just like the next week which mm -hmm. is just like the next year and so you're you're kind of waiting for the big revolutions but until then it seems like there's not a lot happening and there's not a lot of urgency from week to week but with quantum computing it's like this week, Google announces quantum supremacy. The next week, Honeywell has <laughs> some advanced new machine. The next week, there's $10 billion being invested in this. Um, it's, it's like every week now, we, we hear of something amazing happening. And yeah. so, so I love what I'm doing. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so that's chapter two. Um, so uh, now wow. that those two kind of basic chapters are out of the way, I'm going to go ahead and get my curiosities out of the way before we get our viewers' curiosities out of the way after the break. Um, and that is, uh, what is a cosmic string? For the people who didn't join us kind of in the beginning, is that uh, Mark uh, got his PhD in string theory and in cosmology and did all of that good stuff. So this isn't just me asking somebody who knows quantum computing what a cosmic string is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so a cosmic string actually was, was first thought of long before anyone had thought about string theory strings. Uh, mm -hmm. So you actually can start with field. So you start with field theory, which has nothing to do with strings per se. Mm -hmm. And there are some solutions to the equations in which you get these these long filaments of energy. Mm. And this happens. Um, and so it happens when you have quantum field theory in an expanding universe. And it's a lot like when you have water and you freeze it. Mm 
the little imperfections in the in the water molecules when they get frozen li- literally frozen mm-hmm. they misalign that molecule next to it misaligns so you get these little fractures which are literally frozen in and so that's why you see cracks in ice so you mm-hmm. have this perfect mm-hmm. crystalline structure little imperfections which kind of have to keep going mm-hmm. and it, there's a similar solution in uh, in field equations in an expanding universe. Interesting. So it was realized you say like uh, like the solutions to I mean so you mean just like you write down say the standard model with an expanding universe you solve the equations of motion uh, you take a guess at what the like what kind of field could possibly solve these equations of motions and it turns out that this kind of stringy thing works. Um, you, yes. You don't even need the standard model. You can actually just do it with a single scalar field in an expanding background. So like really? the, the simplest possible stupid field theory, mm-hmm. you can do this with an expanding universe um, and, and, a, and a gauge field. But yeah, but uh, but anyway, yeah, with a very simple field theory, you can do this. Uh, just a question. Uh, and so does that come down to the fact that, you know, like for the people here who are probably listening or they, you know, they have a basic training in differential equations, uh, you know, you solve the differential equation there's, you know, there's basis solutions. You can count them on one hand, you know, given the order of the differential equation. But here, you're saying that there's a stringy-like solution, uh, uh, like a kind of tube there's a solution. And, 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 yep. and, and, and that comes down to, my guess, is it not being a linear differential equation, right? It's, it's, it is not linear. That, that's correct. And, and usually, when we look at field theory equations, we're looking at small perturbations, so little mm. disruptions away from the back. And in this, you're actually looking for for a, a massive solution away from the vacuum. So it's 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 topological, we say. I see. I see. So it's not just a little situation. Mm. And so you you would miss it. It would be easy to miss this solution. I see. And so yeah. So you you do some fancy math and you say, okay, well, how do I topologically categorize these? And you see right. that there's this whole class of solutions when that we say the phase of the field wraps around. Oh in a certain way yeah and so this and so is all non-perturbative traps, right this is all non-perturbative this is closed forms of okay wow it's non-perturbative exactly and so um so you get this kind of trapped energy um and it and it looks like a filament mm. and so you can you can think of it as a string and uh and so people had realized this long before and they had actually been looking for cosmic strings in the sky because the gravitational field is so intense there's so much energy in this mm. core this filament right, right. that it's it's almost it's like a black hole but it's funny a black hole kind of yeah, distorts yeah. the field around it a cosmic string actually eats up the space around it if you had a sufficiently caught a strong cosmic string it would actually eat all of the two pi around it space <laughs> time would exist oh my goodness and so like with that uh and this is a dumb question and it could just me be me you know being uh, one third of my way in tequila. In some sense, could that define the horizon of the I universe? Know, no. <laughs> like, like the idea is that, like, 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 could there be a cosmic string kind of enveloping our universe, and that's what's creating the horizon in some sense? So there definitely could be a cosmic string. We don't know the answer, right, right, and right. people, people, people are looking right now for cosmic strings. Um, so right now, the way that we can tell that there are black holes or big plants or stuff is because of gravitational distortion. Cosmic string, it's a little so it, it eats up the space around it, right? Yeah. The, the angle around it, it eats up, but it doesn't distort it. So what happens is that the lensing that you get from a cosmic string, if there's something behind it, like say a star, yeah. you don't see a distorted star. You see two stars. There's actually two paths that it can go. Ah. And so that's the way that find a cosmic string is that you look for a star and an identical star nearby, and there would be a cosmic string wow. in between. That's how you would know. That is insane. And so, that is so yeah. Insane. And so, uh, it's an amazing coincidence. There's two identical stars next to each other, or it's mm-hmm. one star being lensed by a string. We've never found one. There have been right, a few right. um, possibilities that people looked into, but it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that the? But, and, uh, that but yeah, down to them being like one-dimensional objects. Uh, the fact that it doesn't distort it okay. precisely precisely yeah when you when you look at how it affects gravity it actually just kind of eats up the, uh, the a certain angle okay and uh, and so what happens when you start to i mean i imagine let's say that you know you kind of extend this dimension a little bit outwards uh 
it's my guess is you know that it's not some discontinuity that in the limit it'll just look like it's barely distorting it a little bit right or so actually no it's it's actually because it eats a wedge out of space time oh, so it has it to be actually one dimensional full stop so so it's one dimensional if so if when you actually zoom into the equations what you see that it it does have a finite thickness mm -hmm. um so yeah, when you actually zoom in, you're looking at the core, you see that it is smooth and and nothing is singular and everything is well well behaved and everything. Um, but when you're looking at it from far away, it, it definitely looks one dimensional. Oh. It is a string and and it has, you can work out the properties, like you can work out the effective field theory and it kind I of see. wiggles around at the speed of mm. And uh, so yeah, so, so people had done it for decades. I and see. then I, I, with, I think just, just to try and put it in this language that I understand is that uh, the idea is that it's not necessarily one dimensional. It's that uh, if you put it in effective field theory is that th there's no way for it to have any finite width, but it does. It's just uh, effectively. It does. does it. It, it does. Yeah. 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 When, okay, when you, when you look at the equations, it does have a finite width. Um, it's just effectively from far away. It looks like a string. Oh man. I love this man. Effective field theory is my jam. I'm advancing to my PhD in two weeks. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. That was awesome. When I was in college and I first heard the term effective field theory, I remember thinking, what else would there be? Ineffective <laughs> field theory? And, wow. and I, I really do remember thinking that. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just useless field theory. I actually have a question for you here um, because one of the things that is... Yeah so annoyed me so much trying to kind of get my head around you know number one trying to learn particle physics and effective field theory but effective what is used in like five different ways in the context of effective field theory like at first i was so upset because like these things have nothing to do with one another and then i was able to learn more over the years and realize that they kind of like every definition I heard of effective field theory is basically the same thing, but there's like one I'm still low energy. To yeah, exactly. Low energy degrees of freedom, and really, it's the same thing as renormalization. Like at the end of the day, which is remarkable, the renormalization group. And uh, for you, what was your biggest hurdle coming into your PhD in particle physics? Uh, like getting your head around most. Like what was the, in, or maybe just consistent hurdle uh, for you? There's a lot of math to learn. Mm. And and I, I'm okay at math, but I'm not. I would never be hired as a mathematician. <laughs> and so I could think of things conceptually. I was pretty good at that. But sometimes, like like group theory, like a lot of the the technicalities of group theory, I struggled with. Mm. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Like the semi simple Lie algebras and the one yeah, parameter it, family it, stuff. <laughs> just a centralizer in the norm <laughs> left subgroup of the like yeah, yeah. exactly um, yeah I, I, yeah it, it was hard to imagine some of these things um and so i think that may have limited me a bit fair enough yeah. fair enough okay so um uh looks like we've got so many questions here uh that we'd love to get to so what we're gonna do okay. is we're gonna take a little break let those questions kind of accumulate and let's go ahead and uh, get to them right after that. So we'll be right back. Okay, we are back here with Mark Jackson, the scientific lead of business development at Cambridge Quantum Computing and PhD. He got his PhD, not a student of theoretical physics and his advisor, if you don't know by now, well, now you do, was Brian Green. So we have entered part two of our uh, Physics After Hours podcast here. And if you've liked this uh, episode... Uh, physics after hours go ahead give us a thumbs up give us a subscribe and give physics jackson that's your ad on twitter right a follow at jackson at physics jackson go ahead give him a follow and study up on some quantum computing um so okay let's go ahead get to these questions because there's some awesome ones here so i'm gonna merge these two into one because i feel like they're very relevant um the first one is from Eric Aspling. He says, how was Brian Green as an advisor? And two, uh, from David Barardo, 
uh, did his rise to fame affect your PhD at all? Like your kind of learning, your access to him, I guess, things like that. Uh, Brian is great, and he's a he's a very nice person uh, in in real life, uh, as as you might guess from the stage persona. Mm -hmm. um, he's very busy, and so sometimes it was a little tough to get a hold of him. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty independent, and so it was actually good training to be independent mm -hmm. at a young age. Um, uh, wow. So. The one time a week that I knew that I could see him was uh, Friday afternoons he would teach his course. And so we would walk from the physics department to the auditorium where he would teach. And so I'd get like 10 minutes to talk to him. And so I would kind of have it prepared. I'd have bullet points prepared like, this no is what way. I did. That's crazy. This is right on yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but it was actually great practice because mm. now, like when I talk to a supervisor or something, it's like, here's a progress report of what I did this week. Here's what I need help on. These are the specific wow. things, not just babbling. Oh, hey, let's hang out. Blah mm. blah. Um, it was actually really good practice. Like I got ten minutes. There you go. Um, and so, did you guys but, discuss uh, but no, that we're, we're like still... beforehand? Uh, and like, you get these ten minutes, or was it just kind of informal? You knew you had that with them. It was kind of informal. That was just the way it worked. I mean, right. it, it wasn't only that wasn't the only time but it was it was kind of like the 10 minutes i was kind of guaranteed one on one right, right, right. um but no no we we did have much longer conversations sometimes and cool. uh and it was it was great working with him um I, I remember one time we were working on like we were emailing about a paper that we were writing and so he sends me an email like here's the equations blah 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 ps i'll be on dave letterman tonight if you catch it <laughs> and i remember thinking i'm the only math student in physics Who's ever received that email? <laughs> Here's the equation solving the Lagrangian to the da, da, da. oh P.S. I'll be on Letterman. <laughs> okay. So that that's what it was like. Like we'd have like yeah. completely normal physics conversations, and then oh, there's an Onion article about him, uh, and so, so it it was funny. <laughs> that's so cool, and I bet like um, I mean because you were there in such like a transition. I mean like. I don't know if it's a transitional time for him. I don't know what it was like for him, but just a different time for him, kind of coming to fame, things like that. Uh, I imagine you guys kind of built a bond in a way that is different. Uh, and maybe that's why, like you said, like you guys are still friends today. Like, like, do you think that kind of had any role to play in it that you guys were just kind of like, you respected his kind of thing, like, and you were there and you were just, boom like with the questions and what do you think it, it, it could be um uh i was i was very lucky because i had that introduction from my undergrad ad advisor yeah um because i think a lot of students wanted to work for him and I, I was i was very lucky uh mm -hmm. maybe it wouldn't have worked out if i hadn't had the introduction but uh, but yeah we're still we still chat um in fact this year so so brian and his wife uh, tracy um they co-founded the world science festival Oh, which I is a very that. big deal yeah, in New York. And then stuff, yeah. I think they've extended it elsewhere. And I think one of the themes this year was quantum entanglement. And that's actually one of the things that we're doing at Cambridge Quantum. We've built an encryption device based on quantum entanglement. It's mm. this unhackable encryption device, which uses Bell's theorem to, yeah. to produce cryptographic keys that you can't hack. Oh, and so Brian yeah. loved this, that there was a commercial application of, of the Bell inequality and so we were going to try to to work on something together, but then, uh, with these circumstances, obviously all the in-person events are canceled. And so uh, I guess uh, in the title that I put forth on Twitter was quantum crypto uh, cryptography, which I failed to even begin to penetrate uh, during the beginning of this conversation. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you uh, in 30 seconds, uh, completely just off the cuff, what is quantum cri cryptography? Sure. So, so there are several, there are several uh, explanations. So, one thing is, uh, people have one seen one thing about quantum computing. It's usually like quantum computers can hack everything, everything's in danger, blah blah blah. And there's truth to that. And it's, it's cool. the type of math that we usually use for encryption is the type of math that quantum computers are very good at doing. Mm. And so there's a very real threat, um, mm. like in the next few years even of quantum computers being able to do that. So there's a lot of defenses that are being built to protect against that. Okay. One of them is, again, by quantum computers. So it turns out that 
the uh, the uncertainty of quantum physics can be used to generate random numbers. And people have known this for some time. But what we did was we built a device that uses ente- quantum entanglement and, uh, and an equation called the Bell inequality, which right. which does a statistical check comparing quantum physics to deterministic physics. And uh, so we can actually prove no one is hacking. And oh, like cool. you might have heard of Schrodinger's cat. Right. So so, you know, Schrodinger's cat, you put it. Never cat heard of it. In the Schrodinger's box cat? No, I never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so some of your viewers might have heard of it. Um, until you open the box, you don't know if the cat's alive or dead. And so once you make that observation, you've, you've changed the quantum state. You've forced it to, to make a decision. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like that. You can kind of leave things in this indeterminate quantum state. If someone tries to eavesdrop, you can detect that. You don't mm-hmm. need to just trust the device is working. Right, right. You, there's actually a formal mathematical proof that no one has eavesdropped. And if, and if someone is, you can tell immediately. And so, um, so that's, the thing is that you, that's kind of one aspect of So I guess this could be a silly mm-hmm. question. Is it how could you check that no one has eavesdropped unless you check on it yourself, right? You do. So, yes, that's a very good question. So the way that you do this is, well, the way, the way that we do it is, uh-huh. so you have a source of entangled photons, so, so light particles of photons, and they're entangled so they have the same polarization. So you don't know what the polarization of the photons is, but whatever it is, they're doing the same thing, right? They're both horizontal or they're both vertical, right? And so then you measure them. So we say Alice measures hers and Bob Mm -hmm. measures his. Mm -hmm. And they have have to choose a direction, a basis of measurement. And they don't tell each other in advance what that's going to be. They kind of randomly pick a direction to measure it in. If Alice and Bob happen to choose the same basis of measurement, they should always get the same answer because they were entangled. So 100% of the time, they should agree on what the polarization is. Mm-hmm. But now there's some sort of sneaky eavesdropper, we'll call her Eve. So Eve grabs one of the photons, measures it, and then replaces it. So according to classical physics, that's the perfect crime, right? She's mm-hmm. measured it, but replaced it. Right. But she's still broken the entanglement. And so now when Alice and Bob, they do their measurements, even if they're measuring in the same mm. basis, they won't agree 100% of the time. If you do the math, they actually will agree 75% oh. of the time. Wow. Okay. And so, it, so, yeah. so, so, so what happens is Alice and Bob, they do their thing. They do it like a thousand times. Mm-hmm. If all thousand agree, then they're okay. If they agree about 750 of those thousand times, that means something's wrong. It means that someone's been eavesdropping or at least the device isn't working. And so then they just say, okay, we're not going to communicate this way. So that's that's how you can officially check. Mm. Damn. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so it's not just one people, check. It's a people, statistical you know, check. I see. It's a statistical check, exactly. Right, right. But, but you can generate them quickly. So, exactly. so it only exactly. takes like a second generate a million pairs. God, that is so, so fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Man, that is so awesome. Uh, Nathan D says, nice mustache. So people have done this for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Do you have something to add there? I was just going to say, people have known for a long time, but but ours is the first commercial means of doing this. Mm-hmm. So you can actually put this in a server rack and actually do it. Damn, that is so cool. Uh, another question here from uh, Nathan D. Um, says, uh, do you think knowing how to do physics is more important than knowing how to communicate it? That's a loaded. That that's a yeah, that's a really good question. I've met brilliant people, brilliant physicists who are completely unable to communicate it. Um, not not just to a popular audience, but it's trivial. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think it makes life difficult wow. for them and for others. Yeah. yeah I, so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a balance there. I I feel like I don't know. I feel like you know better than me, but I mean, like, it's so tough, you know? Uh, you got to be able to communicate it on some level, I feel like. Because uh, if you can't, then, you know, if you're just like, you know, made up your own mathematics to be like, ooh, this is that. Like, I'm going to give you a box of crayons tell you sit in the corner, you know? Like, <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, Matt Henderson says, um, 
Ray Kurzweil led my team when I was uh, when he worked at Google. Um, did you say that you uh, worked with Ray Kurzweil? So, so Ray Kurzweil was the co-founder of Singularity University. Okay. And so, so we met a few times. Um, uh, I didn't report directly to him, of course. He wasn't involved in the day-to-day stuff, but right, right. It chat a few times, yeah. So, um, I've heard so many different mixed reports on like. So many people think Ray Kurzweil is a crackpot, you know, that he's just kind of like that he's way too precise, you know, his prediction. I mean, what do you I mean, I don't know if, if there's any funding there or this or that, but uh, do you think he's being unfairly treated, fairly treated? I mean, because to be honest, I was a bit too lazy to look into it. So, uh, <laughs> uh. So, yeah. so, so I, I'm not an expert in this at all um, on the idea of, of the singularity and right, right. and such. Um, and for for the benefit of those who may not know what that means, so t- to quickly say, so there's a thing called Moore's law where computers double in power every 18 months or so, and if you ex- extrapolate into the future, it's predicted that around the year 2045, computers will be about as powerful as human brains. And we've always assumed that we're the smart ones building and understanding the computers. So what happens at 2045 when computers are about as smart as us, presumably? Do we merge with computers? Do they take over? Is it Skynet? <laughs> uh, it, it's not at all obvious what happens, but, but the idea of us building computers doesn't seem to be valid anymore. And so Kurzweil mm-hmm. popularized this term, the singularity, where there there's something interesting happens with right where the computers are going to be like what the hell are you doing get out of the way i'm going to build these computers but they're the computers but they're going to be better at it than us <laughs> yeah yeah so um so yeah so ray Kurzweil uh wrote a book called the singularity is near and he talked about a lot of these ideas he even talks about string theory i remember um i remember when i arrived at singularity i was one of very few who had actually read the book uh i thought it was like a prerequisite for there but yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like the kids who I, I remember when I um, uh, when I was a f- um, senior, I graduated to go to um, university. My freshman year, there was a qualified summer reading I had to do, which I did not do, and uh, nobody else did, and the professor figured out that nobody did it and so we just had that whole kind of quarter to read it so uh i don't know why i'm saying that but um do the summer reading prerequisite reading yeah Yeah, stay in school uh (laughs) okay so i don't know if this is school now stay at home yeah stay in school yes yes exactly stay in school in spirit um uh so here's a question i don't know if it's good or not but it's from science power he says, how do cosmic strings relate to time travel and their difference with string theory? I don't know if that's parsable for you. Is that? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a connection between cosmic strings and time travel. And this was actually, um, I think it was realized by a physicist at Princeton named Richard Gott. Um, it's called the Gott time machine, actually. And he, he looked at the equations of cosmic strings and he realized if you had a big cosmic string in the sky... Mm-hmm. And you had a you had a spaceship, and you you made this special path around the cosmic string. Um, I think it's like like two cosmic strings going towards each other or something. But there's some solution. Uh, yeah, it's it's a time machine, basically. He yeah, discovered dude, Einstein's field but, equations emit some pretty trippy solutions. I will admit that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so apparently you could travel back in time, but. Yeah. You need to find two cosmic strings going like this, and you need to have a spaceship that flew between them or something. So, um, so yeah, that's the answer to the first part. And I think the second part was how it relates to string theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, all the cosmic string stuff that we talked about was was before string theory. But it doesn't take a genius to think, well, if there's something called string theory, could I could I get cosmic string like things from string theory? And you so you can. Right. right. Uh, in fact. There are solutions in string theory that, which are not the little particle size ones, but are actually the big size yeah, ones. Yeah. Um, but there's an early, there's a paper by Ed Witten in which he suggests this and then finds four reasons why it won't work. Mm. And uh, and so so he he 
goes through every item of like this is why it, it won't work. Like yeah. the tension is too high in string theory because it's like it's like Planck scale tension and um that's the, so amazing yeah, to me. I, I like, like, like 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 that is so amazing to me that like because to actually run through those calculations would take forever and like like you know Ed Witten just I mean to in my mind the the best living physicist still alive. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't yeah. hear you. What'd you say? I said Ed Witten probably did it before breakfast. <laughs> yeah, Ed Witten to me is uh, just I couldn't even I, I I couldn't shine his shoes, man. Like uh, like the dude is just so brilliant, and like how he just intuits the qualitative and asymptotic behaviors, uh, you know, of these different just equations of motion or he doesn't even derive them it's just like oh like lagrange you would insinuate this and it would confine too early and so if it confines too early that means this string could never be closed i don't know uh <laughs> it's just I, I, I will say, when you read when you read his papers it's like reading a good novel you read it once and you're like that's a that's a nice story i enjoyed that mm, and mm. Then you read it a second time and there's like oh there's details i missed and then you keep reading it and as your experience grows you notice more and more things in the paper that you didn't mm. even notice. And so, yeah, so. Wow. Yes. Um, he's a smart guy. Um, <laughs> so, so, so Ed Witten wrote this article years ago, back, back in the late eighties in which he suggests this possibility, but then points out all the reasons why it won't work. But then in 95, there was what we call the second string revolution. We learned that there was actually all sorts of other things in string theory, like, D-brains, which are sort of these membrane-like objects, and all these non-perturbative things happening. Mm -hmm. And and the story wasn't so simple anymore. And so um, one of the papers I wrote in grad school, which I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, because I got to work with Joe Polchinski, who Perfect. was a, a, another brilliant physicist and a, and a tremendously nice guy who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But we wrote this article in which we kind of revisit this idea. Could you have cosmic strings from string theory? Mm -hmm. And we... We talk about if so the, the possibilities and how you would detect it. So that's what we focused on was how like how would you tell if you saw a string in the sky, how would you know what kind of string it was? Was it a string theory string or was it a old school type of cosmic string? Oh man. And there there is a there is a way to tell. Is there? And so, yeah. Because to me, like when sure. you're talking about like the different scales, you're saying, well, I can't even tell, you know, these different scales, right? Because I'm like in this long distance physics and, you know, really I can only tell the difference geometrically in these short distance physics. But uh, yeah, so go ahead. Indulge me at least. <laughs> sure. So, so they, they, would look, they would look the same. They would look like filaments in the sky. Uh -huh. Now, the way that you would tell is, in the old school type, because you have classical equations of motion, like classical field solutions, everything is is deterministic. Uh, when you when you you have an equation of motion, you just evolve it forward. Right. And so these strings, when you look at how the strings, uh, when they meet, they reconnect. So we have mm -hmm. strings like meeting at, at right angles. Mm -hmm. They'll reconnect because that's the lower energy configuration. But when you have string theory cosmic strings. Everything is probabilistic. It's just a scattering amplitude. And so you you set it up as a scattering problem. You have oh, two see. strings coming in, and then there's some chance they'll reconnect, and there's some chance they'll just fly through each other. Mm. It's just like that's matrix thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so you you just calculate you calculate, yeah, what is the probability that they'll reconnect? If it's a if it's a classical cosmic string, that probability is one. If it's a new type of string theory cosmic string, it's like order G squared, where G is the string coupling. Mm. And so that's how you can tell. See, and I so see. the way that you would practically, like like practically from observation, the way you could tell is you could look in the sky and you could kind of look at what the cosmic string looked like. And if it looked like it had been cut up a number of times from mm. its history, then it's probably an old school type because it's always been reconnecting. And if it looks more or less straight, it's probably... A string theory type that just passed through others. Damn. So, but so, but isn't there an overall like, a cosmic field theory like fudge factor uh -huh. there though? Uh, like, like isn't there? I mean, there's a factor. I mean, I mean, as somebody who's been working with effective field theory for like the last two years, you say, I mean, like 
all of these different kind of regimes, different Lagrangians, you know, this is strongly coupled here, this, that, but I mean, sounds like, I don't know how much of this so, is non-perturbative. Yeah, go ahead. So, so, so yeah, so how do you reconcile these two things? So the way that you, you kind of bridge that gap is that in the string theory cosmic strings, it's perturbative and you can actually reproduce the classical results by looking at non-perturbative results. Um, and mm. so it, like by changing the, the coupling, yeah, so it's not order G squared, it's order one. Okay. And so so that's how they agree. One is perturbative, one is non-perturbative. Mm. Um, Damn. So yeah, that's, this so anyway, that's is, the, This is a conversation the in question. and of itself. <laughs> I'm just hijacking these questions, I'm sorry. Okay, um, uh, this is another question that I can't tell if it's a good question or not. Um, let me know if you can parse it. Um, it's from uh, Pragmatic uh, Entropy Arts. He says, are you approaching decoherence in qubits in some novel way in your new position? Sure. So we, um, so the device I talked about, like with the mm -hmm. encryption and everything, so we are building that. That's a physical device that we're doing. Um, but it actually works at room temperature because it's, all we have to do is create photons and then measure them. And that happens very quickly. So we don't even really need I'm to worry right about I'm doing that right now with my eyes. And ladies, DMs are open. You are doing that with your eyes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And so, um, so in quantum computing, coherence time is a big, big issue. But it's for the programmable type of quantum computers, like the ones being built by Google and IBM and Honeywell and Microsoft and such. And yeah, so Honeywell. with those, you, the you're one running that, like, is trying to give me coupons? Honeywell? Which... Oh no, that's giving you that's honey. Coupon? Never mind, never mind. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not Honeywell. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, that was the dumbest. I'm, we can edit that out when it goes on Spotify. I'm gonna edit we that out real hard. This computer <laughs> to give you coupons. <laughs> yeah, I'll edit that out. It's all good. <laughs> Keep drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes. So coherence is a big issue with quantum computing for the programmable types because you're running a program and you want to make sure that it executes fully. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so another one. Okay, so we have one here from uh, Holofrasm says, how big is a cosmic string? Uh, and then this is a follow-up also from Holofrasm says, also, how many would exist within the observable universe? Uh so how big is a cosmic string? It would stretch from one end of the horizon to the other. So that because the universe is expanding, wow. there's actually kind of an outer limit to what we can see. And and the word horizon is, is very good because just like with the Earth's horizon, if you're standing at some point, there's actually a limit. Like if you're out in the ocean, there's a limit to where you can see. It doesn't mean something weird physically is right there. It's just from your perspective, that's the limit of your vision. And with the universe, it's wow. the same thing. The universe is expanding. There's a point at which it would exceed the speed of light. And so you can't see anything beyond that. Um, nothing physically weird is right there. It's just from where you're standing, that's how far you can see. So a cosmic string would go between those sides. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So very big, very big. Very um, big. So a question here from Science Power says, what is a naked singularity? And also, uh, I don't know if this is a follow-up, but it's also a good question. What are primordial black holes? Uh, a naked singularity is where, <clears throat> well, first, a non-naked singularity. Uh, if you look at the equations for a black hole, mm -hmm. according to the math, the very center of a black hole, it's like infinite curvature, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the math goes crazy, blah, blah, blah right? And, and that could be concerning to you except you can't physically get to the center of a black hole because they have an event horizon like what i just mentioned right. and so it was actually kind of speculated by hawking and penrose that maybe there's some principle in nature that nature always protects the nakedness and the, mm. i'm not coming up with the terms this is actually the, <laughs> the scientific lingo in case someone accuses me of being a dirty old man uh this is actually the formal scientific term you know you're and you're so, safe uh, here on physics after hours <laughs> and so, uh, um, so a naked singularity is when you would actually have infinite curvature, um, but we think that nature conspires to prevent that from actually happening. 
Right on. Okay. So it's and was like, there a uh, question? Uh, the second one was uh, I I, I kind of just want to digest that. So it's the so it's essentially the a black hole without an event horizon. No, is a naked singularity. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the second one is what is a primordial black hole from Science Power? Working black hole. Yeah. So so the way that we understand black holes form is because you have a star and it becomes incredibly dense and it sort of collapses upon itself. And so as soon as its mass goes within a certain radius, we call it the Schwarzschild radius, mm -hmm. then not even light can escape and it's a black hole. And so, so this is actually pretty well understood how stars could do that. And we've mm -hmm. seen black holes, so, we, so it really does happen. Primordial black holes are black holes that were created in during the Big Bang in the early, early universe. And I I don't know very much about it other than what I just told you. Yeah, no, I don't no. know the feasibility and how many we would see and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's that's what it you is. You know, I'm with you. I'm not sure like how likely they are, this, that, the statistical nature of those. I'm not sure. But here's a fun question here from uh, uh, Pushkar uh, uh, Car. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. Um, it says, what is quantum annealing? Uh, and how they maintain quantum effects in super uh, in super superconducting rings, uh, and how do we know? <laughs> he's putting three in one. I love it. Uh, and how do we know that we got an error because of fading of quantum effects? I don't know if the fading is sure. So let me. Not, yeah, go ahead. Sure. So so quantum annealing is a type of quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's different from the machines built by Google and IBM and Microsoft and stuff. With those, you can control the individual qubits, the quantum bits. So annealing is when you have a bunch of qubits, um, but you don't get to control them individually. What you do is you, you encode the problem you're trying to solve in the couplings between the qubits. And then you, what happens is you, you start at a high temperature and then you let it go to a lower temperature, like annealing, and the system finds the, the correct solution. So the, so the lowest energy configuration will be the solution to your math problem, if you encode it correctly. I always joke it's sort of like a Ouija board. <laughs> it's, it's like you set things up and you ask a question Perfect. and then it kind of magically finds the right answer. You don't really have to do any work. You just, oh, that's the answer, okay. Um, so, so there are companies that build uh, so-called quantum annealing machines, there's controversy over whether they're actually quantum computers, I should say. Mm. Um, I don't think it's conclusively shown either way. They are computers. They do do something, um, and they do it very, very quickly. Uh, but but just like a GPU can solve specialized problems much faster than a CPU, yeah. annealing machines, they can solve this one type of problem incredibly fast. It's not completely clear that wow. it's because of quantum effects, though. Oh man, that was that was a really really great explanation. I never heard it put that way. Man, all right. So okay, so it looks like we have questions that are not from these two people, but after this, um, but this is the last one from Science Power. He says, and my last question: What is imaginary time? Uh, you, I mean, I feel like there's so many different ways to go with this. I mean, we could talk about wick rotated time. We could talk about. Uh, I, well, I mean, really just wick rotation. That's it. I, it makes things converge in D-dimensional space. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, one could talk about wick rotation. Um, yeah. I, I will try to explain it like this. So, so you probably know about the Pythagorean theorem, like x squared plus y squared equals z squared. You say what? And according to... Well, if in two dimensions, x plus y, z... Yeah. You say the X square plus Y. Hey, no. You heard it here first. Physics after hours. Yeah. Okay, anyways, go on. Um, I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> so, so most of you have probably seen that. Uh, what Einstein did was he realized that time, so it works for all three spatial dimensions. What Einstein realized was that time can be added as a fourth dimension, but the trick is that it doesn't have a plus sign in front. It has a minus sign, and this is this is kind of weird uh, because it means you're you're adding the squares of x y z, but you're subtracting the square of the time dimension. And what Einstein showed was that that 
sum of the squares uh, with a minus sign, um, that was invariant. That was respected mm. by the laws of physics. Oh, so you're talking and, about actually just so introducing it in that sense. It's just saying, look, it's Euclidean so, just with an imaginary time. Fair enough. When I first heard about it was it's sort of like, oh, well, we could think of it as a normal Pythagorean theorem right. if we make it imaginary. Then, then the minus sign takes care of itself. <laughs> so you can kind of, if, if that helps you, great. Um, I, don't, I don't know what else to... Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a better intuition I could give because, to be honest, uh, wick rotations are, uh, I mean, uh, just for the people who don't know quantum field theory in the audience, which are probably a lot, um, the idea behind a wick rotation is just that uh, when you're doing um, momentum space integrals in quantum field theory uh, and your integral is very, very difficult to do because your metric has got this pesky minus sign, uh, you need to somehow change that. And one way you can do that is do what Dismark just said, is say, well, we can treat it as Euclidean, uh, in which, you know, our norm is the same as where x squared plus y squared, you know, equals z squared on a nice triangle. And so you can get these convergence properties if it does converge. And even if it doesn't converge, you can know exactly how it diverges, and you can deal with that in your own particular way. Um, and that... What it does, uh, there's actually this just brilliant uh, uh, colleague of mine here, uh, Michael Waterbury at uh, UCI. Uh, he's uh, about a year ahead of me in his PhD, and he was kind of... He was working on uh, kind of these projective maps uh, between exactly how, what exactly a wick rotation is uh physically uh and i just thought it was like one of the most fascinating things because man i wish we we talked about it two years ago and i wish i could go on about it more uh but i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to have them all more but yeah so at any rate moving down we can edit that out um let's see Okay. Oh my God, we have a lot of questions here. Uh, what are your thoughts on dark matter slash dark energy? Uh, if they make up ninety-six percent of the, uh, of the universe, um, but we can't model it, are they the new ether, if you will? Um. Yes. Yeah, so, so dark matter and dark energy—they do seem to be there. Um, they have kind of hokey names, uh, but but the math actually does check out. In fact. The dark matter we've known about for a long, long time, um, it, it seems to show up in all of our equations uh, that there's sort of this missing mass. And if you look at the rotation curves of galaxies, it shows up there, it shows up in the calculations in the CMB. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of funny that we have to imagine this other stuff there. But on the other hand, why should all, why should everything in the universe be something that we can see with our human eyes? Uh, so. When you look at it from that perspective, it makes sense that we would only see a small fraction of stuff <laughs> in the universe. Because the only way we see stuff is because, like, well, our lights happen, our, our eyes happen to be sensitive to this thing called the photon, which is one of several forces of nature. Um, it's, it's fortunate. But uh, um, so, yeah, so when you look at it from that perspective, it makes sense we'd only kind of be aware of it only about 4% of the universe. So I Dark energy is a little trickier. So, yeah, I, yeah, before we get to dark energy, I kind of have a fun question. What if dark matter only interacts gravitationally like has no real coupling to the standard model uh as we have it today like what but like, i can't even begin you know to kind of begin to make sense of that uh i guess we just postulate it as this new ingredient uh i just kind of want your takes on that so so yeah it has to have some there's certain properties it has to satisfy. So it has to be cold, we say, so it can't be moving very fast. It has to clump together, right, yeah. um, kind of by Newtonian-type gravity. Mm -hmm. um, weakly interacting, it has to be electrically neutral, because if it had a charge, then it would quickly clump together from that and be right, neutral. Right. Um, and massive, obviously, isn't a photon or something. And so, uh, so we know a few of the properties. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, it very naturally comes out of some models of, uh, of supersymmetry, uh, which, which pairs bosons and fermions, the two types of particles we see. So there's actually something um, 
the the lightest super symmetric partner oh, LSP. The list, uh, yes. The <laughs> it, it, it it has properties which are almost identical to what the dark matter particle would be, mm. um, except we've never actually seen evidence for supersymmetry. So that's kind of God, like another problem. Damn it! Yeah. Did nature so, miss an opportunity there? Nature fucked up. It, it might be that that's, that's how it is. Um, we have good models for dark matter, and we're doing tests for dark matter. And the good news is we know a lot of ways that dark matter didn't happen. So uh, so it is possible that in, in 20 years or something, at, at the LHC at CERN or something, we could create dark matter. Like, we'll know what particle it is. We know how to create it. Sure, we can sure, study sure. it, things like that. So, dark energy, we know less about. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, um, I, like I just had a paper that kind of came out that I kind of want to run by you. This kind of thesis is that uh, since you know cosmology, you kind of know that our uh, our observational cosmology runs kind of fuzzy at, at temperatures above ten MeV, uh, and so there could be a lot of new physics that could actually have kind of uh, unjustifiably, I would say, uh, or unrightfully uh, ruled out certain WIMP candidates. Uh, and this is such a cool little paper, uh, that we did uh, there with, uh, me, Michael Tim, uh, and Shada, uh, that said, what happens if QCD confines at, you know, some other, uh, that, you know, why does it have to be that the temperature crosses, you know, point, whatever the confinement scale is, and then all of a sudden it confines, what if it happens again? How would that affect our WIMP searches? Uh, and turns out we would have unrightfully kind of ruled out uh, a bunch of WIMP candidates, at least if they couple as scalar dark matter and not vector. Vector dark matter actually fares worse, uh, RIP. Um, but uh, yeah, um, this idea that like our cosmology is really kind of fuzzy at uh, higher temperatures and that we're relying on this ability to kind of uh, extrapolate from uh, our physics you know, from temperatures below the BBN scale, say. I remember, so when I started grad school in 99, that was that was around the time of, of what we now call precision cosmology. Uh, cosmology didn't really exist as a precision science before that. And I remember a famous Nobel Prize winner joking, cosmology is just like particle physics. In <laughs> particle physics, we have precision on the order of 1%. In cosmology, you have it on the order of a thousand percent, and it wasn't wrong. <laughs> that was, like the error bars in cosmology were like within a factor of a million or something, <laughs> and and so now it, it just blows my mind. We have things like like Planck data, where you have like one pixel, which we know accurately represents like the echo of the Big Bang. So I, uh, it's it's come a long way in in twenty five years. Yeah, no, I'm with you right there. I mean, but it's, um, and I guess for the field theorists in the audience, I mean, there's like there's a huge playground. Like, like if you just like take the month to learn, you know, temperature quantum field theory, like there's this huge playground of like physics that could have gone on between, you know, the the very very early Big Bang and you know before BBN happened, and you know maybe we're just getting kind of trigger happy here you know i don't know uh with saying that uh maybe anything could have happened but the idea is that like when people you know like when people like you know sabine hossenfelder say wimps are dead this that you know all these people do this is that like there's there's not even error bars on this like we just don't have data on temperatures above 10 mev so it's just yeah um Tim Tate is literally one of the smartest. Dude. I mean, he's now the chair of the physics department, and like I don't know how he's doing all this, but oh, God I damn. know Tim really well. Oh, you know, know Tim? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our, yeah. our paper just came when out. Left, we we carpooled <laughs> together. We were in the same social group, so That's should awesome. say hi to Tim. I would guy. definitely yeah. will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He and Tim are, are very good friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool, man. <laughs> Small world. No, I mean, is he not brilliant? He's fucking brilliant. <laughs> damn it. All right. <laughs> moving on i'm sorry i'm hijacking these questions uh real tight all right um okay so another question here from uh god y'all just making up these names all right um from ethio twitter handle usually made up yeah yeah ethio piana cubit uh says 
how would you expect to interface your room temperature cryptographic system with the devices that hold the quantum information at millikelvin temperatures? So the device that we built, the room temperature one, uh, you just plug into your existing server rack. So it's ready to go. The output is all digital. So there's no issue. You just call APIs and, and that's that. Um, the reason that normal, that, that other quantum computers, the programmable types have to be kept so cold is because of this coherence issue that we talked about. You wanna make sure that the special quantum properties, the coherence, last long enough for the program to run. And so, so for that, you have like, you have a big room with a cryogenic chamber, like these big refrigerators, and you have the little chip lowered into it, and it looks like a chandelier. And then you have wires coming out, and then those plug into a computer, and you can control it from there. Right on. Damn. Okay, I'm getting Owen Wilson right there. Wow. Um, okay, so it looks like we're going to go ahead and call it real soon. Um, so just as fun, because... Uh, we are at the very end, and there are no questions, but the last one I read was from Chunk Master Flex. Was, he said, uh, in the title, I read Quantum Computation as Quantum Consciousness. So what are your thoughts on Quantum Consciousness? Mark Jackson. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I'm asked a lot about this, um, and I guess I have to say, people somehow equate consciousness with quantum physics because... Consciousness is strange. Quantum physics is strange. Therefore, consciousness must be quantum physics. And, <laughs> and, and if you apply that logic Perfect. to other things in the world, it, it doesn't make much sense, right? That, that's kind of a, a superficial way of, of looking at it. Of course, yeah. um, and so, yeah, so they're both interesting and they're both poorly understood. Uh, with quantum physics, though, we can be very mathematically precise. We know what the math is. Yeah. We don't, we don't know why nature behaves that way, but it does. And we've, we've done a lot of mathematical work and a lot of experiments over the past 100 years. With consciousness, it's a little harder to quantify it. And people have different theories and, and sociology is mixed in there and everything, so it's much more complicated. Um, so, so yeah, I, I tend to be a bit dismissive of these quantum consciousness things. Yeah, no, um, just i'm with you 100 percent there uh i don't think that i haven't heard any sentence you know with quantum and the word consciousness together that has ever made any kind of real sense to me in any quantifiable way uh you haven't read the secret i haven't read the what the secret oh the secret oh the power of uh the power of uh what is that it's called like the secret power what the hell the i can't power of your Mind. Yes, yes. The oh, the law of attraction. That's what I'm thinking. Yes, good, good stuff. <laughs> Damn, uh, the law of attraction. We are not advertising it here at Physics After Hours, but oh goodness, thank yeah. you so much. Um, physics at Physics Jackson on Twitter, Mark Jackson, uh, the scientific lead of business development at Cambridge Quantum Computing, and X my heart drops out of my chest theoretical physicist uh whose advisor was I'm still Ryan Green. okay okay fair enough fair enough fair enough fair enough i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> I, I'm look i'm not going club. into academia yeah. after this either so like me like in two years interviewing myself would be like you but no <laughs> yeah academia is a hell of a workhorse you know and i don't i don't have a big enough stable um, okay. So, man, uh, man, people are, people are Thank you so much, Dylan. asking questions. This was yes. Thank you so much for coming. In. Uh, I'm, I want to have you on again. I feel like there's so many questions I want to ask you. And yeah, like there's a lot of questions here. Uh, people want to ask you such a pleasure, uh, man. Um, so yeah, that's that. Um, you thank you all for tuning in and, uh, remember to stay inertial no matter what. <laughs>